Our sermon text comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Please stand. I'll begin at verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please be seated. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, this is indeed our request that your will would be done in this hour, in this place in our hearts, and that you would do so according to the great power that you have already manifested in our lives, as we read in your word, that the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that raised us to new life, that you've made us alive, it's your spirit that lives within us, that we are new creatures in Christ, that you have made by grace, that you renew in knowledge and righteousness and holiness, that we are truly able to pursue with all of our heart the things of God. And so we pray, Father, to this end, that you would help us in this hour to hear your word and that we would not be hearers only, but we would be doers of the word. And so help us to receive it with humble hearts, O Father, as we hear again our duty. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's a generalization, but I think it's true that many people think of religion in the same way they think of life and think it's a great mystery. That in order to find the secret of life, you have have to find the clues and you have to put those clues together in order to find meaning of life, in order to figure out uh, what you're here for. We could liken it to um, a mystery, a movie or a movie like National Treasure. In order to find the national treasure, uh, these men find themselves going to the Canadian Arctic to find a ship named Charlotte, which is buried in its layers of of snow and ice in order to find a pipe stem. And then you have to figure out that the pipe stem has to have moisture placed on it and blood rolled out so you can find a a poem there in which it talks about 55 men writing with an iron pen, which leads you, obviously, to the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) And then you have to figure out to put lemon juice on the back of the Declaration of Independence, which you had to steal, by the way, to get a code there. Then you have to discern the code, that which leads you to a $100 bill and special, special bifocals to read that $100 bill, which leads you to a crypt underneath Trinity Church. And then obviously, obviously, it's way beneath Parkington Lane is the national treasure. Some people think that's what religion is. It's a mystery. It's, it's beyond them. They'll never figure it out. They have to put together these clues which are somehow how hidden. But Christianity is very simple. And the Christian faith says, all of this is provided to you. There are no clues. You simply have to do one thing. And that is to accept what has been revealed. You simply have to accept what is right underneath your nose, Uh, what has been told to many of us hundreds if not thousands of times is very, very simple. It is not a mystery. 
But therein is a difficulty. It's obvious what we are to know. It's obvious what we are to do and what we are to submit to. And so if you begin with that question, can we know God, can we know his will, the Christianity begins with, God has made it very, very clear. What can be known about God is plainly shown. So much so, Romans 1 says, that nobody has an excuse before God. Nobody will be able to stand before the throne of God and say, I'm sorry, but creation was just too subtle. I didn't see anything overwhelming. I didn't see anything beautiful, anything wonderful. There's simply no excuse. But as we read in Romans 1, sinful man takes that revelation of God, that knowledge of God, and he does everything he can to suppress it. He smothers it. He tries to ignore it. He distorts it. And he does the same thing when it comes to the gospel message. We read in Romans how what sinful man does with the word of God, when he sees the gospel, he looks at it, and he says, this is folly. This is weakness. So how can a person see unless the spirit of God works in them? And that's exactly what we believe has happened to us. That we believe you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven without being born again. By the spirit of God granted a new heart. So that the Holy Spirit comes and it opens our eyes so that we can truly see for the first time. And see God's truth for what it is. And to know God's will. To read it and have it blazing in front of us. So there's no mystery. We don't have to go find the clues. God has made it known. And he said this very clearly to Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, he talks about the blessings, the blessings and the curses that will come upon them. But at the very end of that, speaking to when they'll come back from exile, he says this, this command that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And in Romans 10, when Paul speaks of the gospel, this is a passage he goes to. And he says, we don't have to go into heaven and bring Christ down. We don't have to go down into the abyss and raise Christ from the dead. God has made it known. It's sitting there right in front of your nose. He has made the revelation of the gospel clear. And more than this, God promised to give his people, when they came back from exile, a new heart, namely the Holy Spirit, that they would understand God's will and be able to do it. And he said this to his prophet Ezekiel. In chapter 36, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And so in order to establish this point that God has made his will known to us clearly and that he grants us his spirit that we could pursue it and do it, we can go to these Old Testament passages. We don't even have to begin to talk about the New Testament. God has made this clear throughout Scripture. And so when we pray this prayer as Christians, we're praying that God would make us willing and able to know God's will, that he would make us willing and have a humble heart, able and desiring to, to receive this, this word that he's given to us. Now, God's made it 
known to us. He's made it very clear. And what we read this morning sums up all of God's moral will in those Ten Commandments. Those are the headings, that, or the way you could organize all of God's moral will. It's found in those ten simple commandments. And maybe ten is too long for you. Uh, maybe we need something simpler. Well, Christ was asked, what's the greatest commandment in all Scripture? And he says, it's very simple, Deuteronomy 6, 5, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is likely to love your neighbor as yourself. So if ten's too many, how about two? It's not that complicated. It's very simple. But it's not easy. And that's why we're praying that God would make us willing and able to know it. Sometimes you open your Bible, and you know this is God's word. You know you should read it, but you don't always find yourself wanting to read it. You thought you were the only one. You don't always have that heart to receive it. And that's why we pray this prayer, that we need to hear his word. We need to believe it. We need to receive it. We need to be changed by it. And that's why Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is perfect, what is acceptable. We need to know what what Christ wants. We want to understand it. And so we meditate upon it. We, We memorize it. We want to see all of life through it. What does Paul say? We destroy Uh, we take every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, we destroy it, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. All of our thinking, we want it to be harnessed and changed and disciplined by this, this word. That's why we want to know it. But it's not enough to know it. We don't want to simply be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. So we're praying that God would help us not just to know, but to do what we know. And to live out what we believe. As a friend of mine says, if we would only believe what we believe. And in one sense, that's what we're praying. That we lay this word up in our hearts so that we will practice it in our lives. Christ says wisdom is proven in, in her actions. And that's why he concludes the Lord's, uh, his great sermon on the mount with these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. That's what we want to do. We want to walk in holiness. We want to live in righteousness. We want to practice the the fruit of the Spirit, especially love. And Scripture is so practical for us. It helps us. Maybe you're wondering, what is the will of God for me as as an employee? Well, he says in Ephesians 6.6, Obey your masters, not as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Perhaps you're wondering, what is my responsibility with regard to, to to sexual ethics. He says, well, this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. I don't know what the will of God is for my attitude. Well, he tells you in 1 Thessalonians 5, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God. And scripture could not be more clear. It's never the problem when we sin that I didn't know that. We rarely can plead ignorance. We know what he wants. But it's this ability to do it Or to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he's saying. To be like the angels. To do God's will entirely with all of your heart. To seek his ways earnestly. To pursue his righteousness sincerely. To persevere in holiness constantly. And you say, well, that's a really high standard. Well, that's nothing compared 
to loving your brother and sister in Christ the way God has loved you in Christ, to forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ, to show compassion if you've been shown compassion. We have these, these great ideals that we live by, but of course it's very appropriate. But that's the challenge. Not to do it, but to desire it. Not just to know God's will, but to desire to pursue God's will. And you say, that's the very problem. I don't obey them. I'm inconsistent and I fail again and again. I don't always want to obey and I'm not always sincere when I obey. I, I do sometimes the, the right thing for the wrong reasons. And even when I'm willing, I'm weak. I'm very vulnerable and powerless and I'm constantly tempted. You're not the first. When Christ found his disciples sleeping, he said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We see this in David, a man after God's own heart, a genuine follower of God. But when he faced temptation, he failed. It wasn't because he didn't know. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, says, it's not enough to know what's right. You must be ready and strong. How deep does that knowledge go? Is a resolve that comes with that knowledge? Is there a strength that comes with that knowledge? And that's why David understood why he failed. He failed because he was weak, and so he prays to God, renew a right spirit within me, uphold me with a willing spirit. He understood his, his will who'd let him down. And so that's what we pray, that God would strengthen our will in order that we might desire to desire what God desires. And that's the very promise he gives to us in Philippians 2.13. He tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But how is it that you can do so? Is it because God is at work in you to work and to will according to his good pleasure? He's not just enabling you to do the right thing, but to desire and to will and to strive after the right thing. He's right down there in the very heart of the heart, helping us in this place of great tension and difficulty. The book of Hebrews closes with the same sentiment. It says, may the God of peace equip you with every good work that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. That's why we pray this prayer. It gets to the rub. It gets to the challenge of any of us in this room who are honest, that we need to want what God wants, that I desperately need to love what Christ loves. I want to press on in those things that God is pressing in, in me. And so we're asking God to supply this grace so that we would do God's will, that we would will to do God's will. So we know God's will, we want to do it, but we also need to submit to it. And so we pray that, that God would, would help us in this way that we would bend to his desires, that we would submit to his pleasure. Now, logically, this makes total sense. We are servants of the king. We want to, to live for our king. And that's the way this prayer falls out. It begins with all the things that speak of God and, and his glory and of him. It doesn't speak of us. These initial repetitions that we have in the Lord's Prayer, they're all about God that we're praying for his name to be hallowed. We're praying for his kingdom to succeed. We're praying that his will would be done. It makes total sense. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, he died that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised 
again. But here again, this is a great challenge for us. So we're praying that God would soften our hearts, not to seek our own desires, but to pursue his. And to pursue what pleases him. When John Calvin opens up his exposition of the Ten Commandments, he has this sentence. He says, the fact that the Lord has laid down a rule of perfect righteousness and related every part to his will that clearly shows us that nothing is more pleasing to him than obedience. And in fact, this was the rebuke that Saul heard. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience, that's that's what our master wants. This is what pleases him. And and so we're praying that we would do that to those things that that we know. And as we've already demonstrated from from Scripture and, and by the honesty in our hearts, this is a hard thing to do. It's not a hard thing to discover what God wants and what he reveals. The hard thing is to do it and to pursue and to submit to it. But it could be that we've not even spoken about the hardest thing yet. Let me read you a scripture passage. Speaking of Calvin, he quotes all the time. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29. So it comes just before the passage we're looking at at Deuteronomy 30. Some of you know the passage I'm going to quote already. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And you see what Moses is saying. There's two parts of this. There's those things that God has revealed to us. That's what we've been talking about so far. Those are given to us that we would obey them and do them. But then there's this other side. His secret will. And that belongs to him. There are the things that should be done, and there are the things that will be done. His revealed will and his secret will. And so when we pray this prayer, we're praying that we not only know and that we would do and submit to what is revealed, we're praying that we would submit to what is secret and what is known to him. And those things he's not explained to us. That hidden providence, that secret will of God, that is... That is the great challenge, to submit to those trials that God allows, that God has ordained. Samuel, David, Job all said, let the Lord do to me what seems good to him. That takes a lot of faith. 1 Peter 3.17, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Or when... Paul heard by prophecy that in his going to Jerusalem that he would suffer there. He said, let the will of the Lord be done. It's obvious what scripture says that we are to accept God's portion, that we are to be patient in these seasons, that we are to be content in every circumstance. And we know what the word of God tells us, that that our suffering shapes our character, that these trials produce a harvest of righteousness in us, Uh, that these things teach us to rely upon God. It promises us that all things work together for good. We know that. Everybody in this room knows that. That's not the hard part, but to submit to it. To do so, Scripture says, without complaining, when we see how hard we have it. To do so without being envious of our brothers and sisters in Christ who apparently have it so easy. 
This is difficult. But isn't this why we pray? Not just for ourselves, but for others? Is it not the case that oftentimes you find yourself praying for a brother and sister, and you say to yourself, if I was underneath that weight, I would be crushed? What this is, is like your will signs a resignation letter and gives it to God. And reminds us that we're in a kingdom, much like the military. They're called orders, Maverick. They're orders. And this is what he has ordered. C.S. Lewis says there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. We are the first, and we pray that his will would be done. It's a difficult prayer to pray, that his will would be done in circumstances where he has shown us no no rule, no light, no understanding, but we're called to submit to his goodness and to his wisdom and to his supremacy and to his sovereignty, which he tells all are marshaled for our good. One of the remarkable things of our Savior is that he not only taught us to pray, to know, to do, to submit to God's will, but he modeled it, modeled this for us. If anyone had a right to seek their own will, if anyone walked this earth and could insist on their own rights, it was Christ. But what was his delight? His delight was to do and to submit to the will of his Father. And what we understand is that Christ lived and he died according to the standard that he taught. He never required anything of his disciples that he was unwilling to do himself. He hoisted no burden upon others he was not willing to carry himself. Because what we read in the life of Christ is that his true delight was to perfectly obey and to do the will and submit to the will of his Father. He said this repeatedly. I'll just give you a few instances. In John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 5.30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In Hebrews 10.9, here I am, I have come to do your will. That's what we see in Christ. His desire to obey his father entirely, sincerely, willingly, fervently, and constantly, every time, at every point, and in every way, in all things. To submit to his father's will, even to the very end, and to yield himself to this plan of salvation that he agreed to before the foundations of the earth were laid. Despite the suffering that it would bring upon him, despite the cost that it would demand from him, despite the agony that he would experience because of it, he does not resist being led into the wilderness to be tempted because this was according to the will of the Spirit. He does not resist being arrested or tried, or betrayed, or condemned, or crucified. In the garden, he does not shrink back from embracing the Father's will. And what is remarkable is that when we see in our Lord in the total summit of his agony and distress, what does he pray? He prays this prayer. Matthew 26, 39. He fell on his face and he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Not as I will, but as you will. And then a second time, he said, My father, 
If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. That's why people have said the Lord's Lord's prayer is like a secondhand prayer. It was Jesus' prayer before it was yours and before it was mine. And so in the garden, he is praying exactly as he taught his disciples to pray. It was good enough for them. It's good enough for himself to do and to submit to God's will. In Matthew 6, while he's teaching, he says, your will be done. But in Matthew 26, as he's suffering, he says, your will be done. And that's what he pursues. This obedience to his father's will, which culminates in this one spectacular achievement of self-surrender. In Philippians 2.6, it says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which tells us that Christ would rather die than disobey the will of his Father or allow us to die in our sin. This is not by accident. This is God's will. Isaiah 53 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And this is no secret to Christ. He knows what's waiting for him. And he accepts it. He eagerly takes up his father's will and he obeys it to the, to the very end. He takes upon himself the terrible obligations of that eternal covenant that he made with the Father and the Spirit, an obligation that must be sealed by his own blood and the unspeakable suffering that he must endure. Nothing can stand in his way. He is going to go to the very end. He's going to pay any price. He's going to do whatever needs to be done in order to fulfill the will of his father. That is the beauty of the perfect obedience of Christ. And it reflects a love that is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, that stirs in a heart with motives that reflect the glory of God as clear as crystal. This is obedience, not my will, but your will be done. And that was the will that was supreme in his life, in all of his ministry, in the garden, and in his suffering. It's the will for which he was born, for which he died and rose again and lives and reigns. That will was the rule of all of his life as it is for his disciples. And it's that will that has won for you the forgiveness of your sins. The righteousness in which you stand by faith before God and the eternal grace of God which is promised to you. Christianity is not a mystery. You don't have to go searching for the clues. God has made known his salvation. We don't need to ascend to heaven and bring Christ down in order to obtain God's truth and his grace. We don't need to descend into the abyss of death and raise Christ from the dead. He has done all that. All you need to do is to believe. To believe in Christ and submit to his goodwill. That's all you need to do. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you how you have condescended to us not only in your Son and the salvation that he has purchased for us, but in all the ways in which you have opened your heart to us that we would understand how to live and even know how to pray. We thank you for this petition that we bring. And we bring, Father, in our weakness, 
and our neediness. But we also do so in the confidence of faith, trusting in Jesus Christ and trusting, Father, in the promises of your word and all that he has done for us and all that he promises to us and all that he is doing in us by his Holy Spirit. Continue to shape us and mold us, O Father, that we would pursue the will of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart. Help us in this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.